Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, I know. You're telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great conversations. In season six, our disease films series had adaptations like The Omega Man, based on I Am Legend, The Andromeda Strain, Children of Men, and Blindness. I Am Legend is so much better than The Omega Man. What about the Will Smith version? Don't get me started. For our This Is Real Life Jack series, we talked Black Hawk Down and Seabiscuit, some great true stories based on fantastic books. And we had more listeners' choices, like The Fly, The Emigrants, and Scott Pilgrim versus the World. You just did a series on The Fly on the Sitting in the Dark podcast. Did you read the original material? Wasn't watching every Fly movie enough? <laughs> our Big Betty Davis series featured adaptations like The Little Foxes, Now Voyager, All About Eve, and Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Are you calling Betty Davis big. Only in personality and force. She is a force to be reckoned with. <laughs> we talked about the entire The Godfather trilogy, of course. Iconic page to screen, even if it is just the one Mario Puzo book. I wonder if Coppola will ever make the Sicilian. We also had some Zhang Yimou adaptations with Judo and Raise the Red Lantern. Absolutely gorgeous movies. And don't forget the Hughes Brothers series with From Hell, based on the graphic novel. Brilliant material. Kelly Reichardt gave us Wendy and Lucy and Certain Women, adapted from short stories. Plus more Hayao Miyazaki as we tackled Howl's Moving Castle. Find all these books and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports the show. Get the full list of adapted films that we've covered at thenextreel.com slash originals and start your next read today. Next Reel 
everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, we're dipping back in the world of Hayao Miyazaki with his 1997 Avatar prequel, Princess Mononoke. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at the next reel. And if you're a regular listener of this show and you're interested in supporting our ongoing work investigating great film, please consider a regular donation through our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the next reel. And don't forget, we have a listener's choice episode coming up soon, soon, soon. In fact, we're doing the drawing next week in our episode for Spirited Away. Patreon patrons are automatically entered into a drawing to tell us what films to discuss and to join us on the show to make their case why. We've got a blot spot. Friend of the show, Ben Lott, has written in with his rebound on our final Pablo Lorraine film, No. Naturally, everyone is expecting me to despise another journey into Pablo Lorraine's filmography, but I didn't hate No. In fact, I kind of liked it. The period-appropriate visual style was awesome, and finally, we actually got to dig into the Chilean politics that were just happening in the background for the other films. It's not the kind of movie that I'll watch again and again, but it was way better than I expected. Your rank 190, my rank 188. There, that's, that's pretty close. That's pretty close, and I'd say that's a you know that's a good sign. I think, despite the fact that <laughs> that Ben ended up hating the first two films, I think it was a valuable uh, trilogy of films to look at. So I I'm glad we did it, and I'm glad we made Ben watch them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I am too. Anytime, let's do trailers. <laughs> I want to go first, Andy. Why don't you? Uh, my film, Andy, is Unlocked. And first oh, of all, yes. let me say, it's a Numi Rapace vehicle. You know, we like the Numi. And in fact, yeah. here's a film that I didn't even think was happening. It was called Rupture. Have you seen the, the trailer for this? I don't know. Have I? I don't you, think so. You probably haven't. Let me assure you, it's not the movie you think it's going to be when the trailer starts. No, it's not. That's not even the film I'm talking about right now, though. It the Rupture is out as of a couple of weeks ago, but no, you haven't heard anything about it, and there's probably a reason it's got a 4.8 on IMDb right now. Oh. Numi's... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Numi's next movie is unlocked and it's it's coming out pretty soon uh it is uh, it's the story of uh, she plays a cia interrogator and according to imdb she is lured into a ruse that puts london at risk of biological attack and it stars numi it stars orlando bloom and tony collette and michael douglas and john malkovich 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 uh and uh, you know a number of people that you think hey these people are in good movies I'm going to see this. And then you realize as, you, as you're watching the trailer, goodness, I've seen this movie before, like a thousand times. This is a movie that has been shaken up like in a dice game and rolled out on the movie Monopoly board. And they bought all of the CIA interrogator tropes and just jammed them back on screen. This is this looks to be about the least creative interpretation of a Bourne story, with the exception of the fact that Bourne is a lady person this time. It it it, it, it it's possible this is going to be a fascinating, uh, fun story. But after this trailer, I have very little reason to believe it so. It is written by Peter O'Brien. Peter O'Brien has, to his writing credits, uh, a short called Self-Storage. 
He wrote the uh, video game Halo Reach and now Unlocked. So this is his first feature film. It is directed by Michael Apted. Michael Apted has directed some uh, some films that uh, I've liked in the past, um, but he's not a director who uh, who always uh, hits him out of the park. I think he's an interesting fellow, um, but um, sometimes I think there are films that may not be the types of movies that he really should be directing. Um, you know, I, I you know I I don't know. I mean, he he ha- helmed um, which of the, the world is not it? enough. World is not enough. That's right. Yep. But for some reason, um, I Did always you think of though, Andy. Yeah, you should you should have to note the world is not enough. And then uh, two years later, you know what else came out? Enough, yeah. Andy, with Jennifer Lopez. Well, enough. That's what I, that's what I was gonna say. <laughs> there are movies that he has directed, like Enough with Jennifer Lopez. That just I don't think uh, you celebrated that joke well enough, Andy. I'm gonna keep interrupting you until you laugh. The world is not enough, and then enough comes out. <laughs> Come on. All man. right, fine. Ha ha ha. All right. Have You're your so funny. <laughs> <laughs> he he's a director that's always confused me because I, I think that when he's doing his documentaries like his Seven Up series, um, I think that there's something interesting that he's doing there. Um, and some films like you know Coal Miner's Daughter that seems to kind of fit in with the vibe. Gorillas in the Mist those are movies that seem like the types of movies that that he should be doing. I mean even Thunderheart I enjoyed quite a bit. Um, Nell, I, I think that's kind of where things started slipping and he started doing a lot of these things that I'm just like, what is he doing? Like, and why are people giving him these movies that just don't seem like the types of things he should be directing and unlocked feels that way. But I will say I was excited up through the moment where she gets the phone call and they say, we have somebody for you to, uh, to interrogate and she's already there. I was like, okay, this is really intriguing. And then it just went downhill from there. But up until that, like that moment, I was like, this is kind of a really interesting trailer. Um, yeah. And then it fell apart, but, um, uh, I, I don't know. I, it's an interesting cast. I don't know what happened to Tony Collette's hair in it, but, um, yeah, yeah I don't know. Yeah. A lot of bleach, a lot of, uh, cutting <laughs> and bleach. But I don't know. I, I like the cast a lot. I'd like to think that it's something that would actually be good. Um, I'm not expecting it, but I, you know, this is one of those things that I probably would, uh, you know, if it's late at night and I can't sleep, I'd probably watch it. <laughs> so it's one of those movies. <laughs> well, Go, Michael Apted. <laughs> I will say, uh, I just watched uh, Neighbors Two: Sorority Rising, so I know that feeling so well. <laughs> uh, let me say, I this movie is already out in the UK, and uh, I uh, I know that Kermode and Mayo have have already done the their review on this, and their biggest critique uh, or criticism of it is Orlando Bloom's uh, plucky uh, uh, British thief uh, turned incredibly talented spy uh pivot in the film apparently it's a it, they, they didn't have enough car- actors to carry out all of the different tropes they needed uh displayed on screen so they threw the rest of them into orlando bloom uh so it, it should be interesting to watch just to see the the kind of frankenstein's monster that comes out of it that it is o- open now in the uk and in fact a lot of other places around the world. It started opening in Russia April 27th all the way through um, May and early June to Taiwan. So UK, Ireland, Lithuania, Croatia, you should all go see it. We won't be able to see it here in the United States until September 1st. What does that mean? 
they're just dodging the the summer uh, uh, summer release schedule. All I can say about your movie, this is my last thought on it, is as you were talking about it, I did end up looking up the other or the Rupture movie yes. that Doomy is in. It's almost and a prequel. What what is that though? <laughs> wow, I don't even know what to say about that movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not the movie you think it's gonna be. Oh, I don't know. See, that I mean, one's already out. That one's already yeah. out there. Yeah, um, the write the write up pretty much spells it out as she's being transformed <laughs> into a spider or something. I don't even want to know. Anyway, yeah. Pete. <laughs> yeah, good times. Complete- good times. What's your trailer, Andy? Completely different tone. Uh, my trailer is for the hero, a really just fantastic looking trailer that I've got to say, uh, there's this wonderful actor out there who has a wonderful voice that sm- that sounds like velvet and uh, and velvet and cigars and bourbon. I don't know. There's something about his voice. <laughs> That just sounds so right in whatever he says, and that actor is Sam Elliott. And I, you know, you think about Sam Elliott though. How often can you say that Sam Elliott like is helming a picture? And I, I think that's what I see in this trailer for the movie The Hero. Is this? It's a Sam Elliott vehicle, and I just it gets me so excited to say, "Wow, this is Sam Elliott's movie. He's carrying the thing." And. Um, I don't know. I just got really excited. Uh, this is a, a film uh, written and directed by Brett Haley, also co-written by Mark Botch. And uh, Brett Haley is kind of, uh, I don't know if I could say he's making a name for himself, but he's hes directed a couple of films that take, you know, aging actors and does interesting things with them. His previous film, I'll See You in My Dreams, had was a story with Blythe Danner as the lead. In this film, uh, The Hero, You've got uh, this story about Sam Elliott, this aging cowboy actor who's, uh, you know, finds out he's got cancer and then he's trying to come to terms with it and trying to reconcile his life with his estranged daughter, uh, Lucy, played by Kristen Ritter, our wonderful uh, Jessica Jones. Um, And then he's, uh, you know, hangs out smoking pot with his uh, guy that he used to act with, Jeremy, played by Nick Offerman. And uh, it kind of hooks up with this uh, this stand-up comic uh, played by Laura Preppen. And, I, you know, I don't know. I, I really like the vibe of it. And uh, I'm, I'm kind of really excited about this film, which is weird because it just seems like this kind of small character piece about this aging actor. But I don't know. I just got really excited seeing Sam Elliott as the lead for something. What do you think? You know, I first of all, I'm I'm, of course right with you. I think it's fantastic to see Sam Elliott as the lead. He is a guy with an awful lot of credits uh, for just, you know, the bit part, the wise, uh, weathered old wizard who gives you just great uh, advice. You know, he's the voiceover guy. I like that. But the the guy I was most excited about in this movie was Nick Offerman. Uh, He just is playing a character that I feel like I haven't seen from Nick Offerman in a while. He has, uh, he, he's, he's got a little bit of the Colbert syndrome. Uh, it's tough to look at Stephen Colbert and not see Stephen Colbert. And uh, I, I feel a little bit like that with Nick Offerman off of uh, Parks and Rec and, and some of his, um, his, his personality is just very, very much sort of is that. And to see him with his face shaved a little bit differently and, and just the way his body was moving, I, I'm very excited about to see that. Uh, Laura Preppen, I think, uh, also looks great. I was very excited to see her in this. And I think their relationship looks really interesting. And so, um, you know, I, I when when he says he's 71, uh, it, it, it kind of 
I, I like the idea of them exploring that sort of young old relationship and him. What is he getting out of this sarcastic, you know, younger comedian? I, I just found myself really interested in that relationship. So I'm I'm actually really bullish. It, it feels again like one of those films that we've sort of seen before, but never quite done this way. And so uh, it reminds me of your trailer last week. I think it was that the big sick, uh, which was something we've seen before, but never quite that way. So I'm I'm going to go ahead and celebrate that. Fantastic. Well, this one has been uh, running the festival circuit and is going to be hitting theaters June 9th. So it'll be a nice little bit of, of counter-programming for the summer. And you see he's doing uh, the, it, one of his upcoming films is A Star is Born, which is not, uh, I, it, which, it looks like it's written and directed by Bradley Cooper um, and stars Bradley Cooper and Sam Elliott. Do you that see this? Really? Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. Um Interesting. This and Bradley like really Cooper. Project, yeah. yeah. Huh. I haven't seen wow. a trailer drop for this, but I think we need to uh, we need to look for it because it looks like a very curious um, project for these people. And it's also stars. It looks like as the young ingenue Lady Gaga. Nice. Well, I don't know if she's the young uh, ingenue, but uh, she's I don't even see certainly her in it, but third <clears throat> third build. Stephanie Germanata, and, Andrew Dice Clay, Dave Chappelle. That's an interesting yeah. cast fascinating this is a place for gods and demons in a time when gods walk the earth an epic battle rages between the encroaching civilization of man and the gods of the forest when the forest has been cleared and the wolves wiped out this place will be the richest land in the world now the fate of the world rests on the courage of one fearless princess. I'm not afraid to die, and I would do anything to get the humans out of here. And one brave warrior. You fight like a demon, boy, like something possessed. What exactly are you here for? To see with eyes unclouded by hate. Now watch closely, everyone. I'm going to show you how to kill a god. Fire! 1997, Andy, we're back with our friend Hayao Miyazaki and his film, Princess Mononoke. This is not the movie I remember. It's been a long time since I've seen this. And that first arrow shot that slices off the dude's hands, uh, that that reminded me that this is not that movie that that I remembered. <laughs> After we saw Totoro, every, every Hayazaki movie, Hayao Miyazaki movie has, uh, includes a big, sweet, cuddly Totoro in it in my head. Now, I know that's not true. And this movie with the giant wolf uh, shaking the guy by his own head, like that brought it back to reality for me. What, how did this hold up for your family? Uh, we we had all seen it before, and I, I do every time I'm watching it, I'm like, gosh, I don't know if I should be showing this to my kids. But I will say there's something to be said about um, violence like this in an animated film. And I'm not saying it's right to show these films to your kids, but they handle it in a different way. And they, you know, talking to my kids about it afterward, I, I had a sense that it was really shocking and surprising to see what happened. But I think it kind of, in their eyes, kind of spoke to just kind of how serious some of this stuff was. And and I mean, yeah, the, those first couple arrow shots that take off, you know, the arms of the guy and then the head of the guy, uh, I mean, they were just like, whoa! Like, they yeah. just like totally flabbergasted that that happened. And really just, they, you know, just kind of took them by surprise that that this was not your run-of-the-mill uh, film that would be um, released by Disney. 
this is a totally different type of film that is a little more adult. Um, but I think that they, um, while they may not have understood everything going on within the film, the way that things were depicted and the the level of the violence and just kind of the, uh, just, I guess you could say intensity of the story, um, it just, I, I, I don't know. I had a sense just talking to them that there was, uh, a different take on it than something with like frozen, you know, it was just, it was a, a deeper, um, uh, it reached into them a little bit more. I'm not saying they, they, they would rather watch this all the time instead of frozen or something like that. But I think that they, I, I don't know. I, maybe I'm just reading into it because I, I want to believe that it was okay to have shown this to my kids. <laughs> but, but I think that they, they took it in stride and they were, they just kind of watched it and said, you know, this is, you know, it's a, it's a fantasy story and it was kind of okay. I, you know, it's got a lot going on. I, I think, so family aside, and my family is, is, it was, was kind of the same way. I mean, I, they, they definitely get that there's a lot going on in the film and we haven't had our, our, you know, due to intervening events, we haven't had our post movie chat about it yet. Uh, and so, like you, I'm not sure how much is kind of stuck with them in terms of the the deeper messages of the film. I think they liked it, but they did not like it as much as the other Miyazaki films that we've certainly done on this show in the past. They didn't connect with it as well. And, and I have to say, I didn't connect with it as well either. I expected it to hold up, uh, to live up to my memory of it. And, and it it didn't um, in in that way, and and as entertaining as as kind of the the action sequences were for me, I I didn't find myself really resonating with the message as well as I as well as I think I had. Maybe I'm just overexposed to messages like this right now. Maybe I, I don't know, but uh, but it didn't didn't really hit home. Uh, did it for you? Did it really lock in for you? You know, not it's it's tricky. I I actually watched this. I ended up splitting it uh, halfway in the uh, in with the English dub, and then half of it in the Japanese with subtitles, uh, mostly because my kids uh, fell asleep and had to finish it at a different time. But um, I, uh, I, I, the English dub frustrates me, and I get distracted by some of the voices in there, uh, particularly Billy Bob Thornton. Um, and, and so I kind of struggle a little bit with the way that the uh, the English delivery is. I find myself enjoying it better in the Japanese and easier to connect to it. That being said, I, I had a I, I didn't love the film when I watched it. I, I, I when it finished, I go, that was a really interesting story. But I will say this is one of those movies that has really stuck with me, and I've been thinking about it a lot. I've just had a lot of imagery going through my head. And I, I found myself over the last uh, week just kind of really processing it and just the, my estimation for it has been growing and growing. And I am, uh, I'm really kind of in the, I, I'm fully on loving it camp right now. Really? Yeah. The fully on loving it camp. That's where I am. I've, I haven't been to that camp. <laughs> it's, it's full of lovers, Pete. <laughs> sounds... It's a little bit naughty. Naughty? <laughs> So uh, this, like, uh, it, it definitely carries forward a lot of the themes we've already discussed about Miyazaki's films. I, I, again, I should preface this by saying I am not a Miyazaki historian and, uh, you know, expert, uh, but but I think we can say that this safely lands in the Miyazaki uh, trope camp. It is man versus nature. It is the impact of technology uh, on man. What what technology it does to us. Technology is uh, and war as poison. Um, uh, it is 
it, it is very much a story that poses the questions of, uh, uh, are we able to exist peacefully with our surroundings, would you say? I think that's a pretty fair assessment of it. I, I think there's a few things going on. Um, it's about us being able to uh, kind of live in harmony with our surroundings and each other. And I think there's this sense of uh, kind of the death and rebirth and uh, loss of innocence and, uh, you know, just the way that things change over over the course of life. So I think there's a lot of different ways that uh, and a lot of different things you can see in the story. And uh, to that end, I, I think it's really strong. And I, I like the way that it doesn't give you just easy answers. It's There's nothing that's straightforward in the film. It's very ambiguous. You have antagonists that do really good things. You have protagonists that aren't necessarily uh, great. Um, these gods, these gods of nature, none of them are really nice. They're all kind of, uh, you know, fighting and, and uh, grumpy and ready to just kind of tear into things. I, I think it's a really interesting depiction of the world. And it's almost like this very yin-yang sort of nature of things and how everything has kind of a good and bad side. And it's just, it, it made for, I thought, just a much more interesting world that uh, that Miyazaki and his team had painted here. It is much more timely than I expected it to be. And this time around watching it, I found myself much more intrigued by uh, our antagonist uh, and her role and the Iron uh, iron Village and the... That would you know, be a town, world. Pete. <laughs> iron, iron Town, you're right. You're right. Iron Metropolis. Uh, and, and the way it relates to its natural surroundings and in order to do the things that were important to her. You know, in this case, there's a whole question about the cost of, frankly, the cost of healthcare, which I, I did not remember from the first time around. Like, at what cost do we keep these, the our internal sort of leper community? We, we're welcoming them in. We are putting them in the corner, so they're not great, but we're welcoming them in. But we have to destroy the environment to actually heal them but we're welcoming them in like the 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 conflict that exists in that narrative i found really interesting this time around and i didn't even remember that it existed last time and again to your point it just outlines the the deep complexity of the story and the stuff that he has jammed in to uh this film uh, it it really it I, I don't know. It, it treats the audience with a, a greater degree of sophistication, I think, than, like you say, the, the, our, our, what we're used to from Disney. Um, you know, I think we just get much more uh, advanced sort of propositions um, about how we think about the world around us. Yeah, Studio Ghibli is not one to shy away from this sort of stuff. I mean, just look at one of their early films, uh, Grave of the Fireflies, if you want to get a taste of, you know, the fact that yeah. these guys, are, you know, don't shy away from challenging stories. Um, I, something I really was drawn to on this watch was this this connection that this story has, this tonal relationship it really kind of uh, has with uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's work uh, in like Lord of the Rings and how there's this this sense of of man and nature and how man as uh, mankind advances and uh, you know does what he needs to do to um, to grow and to improve um, becomes so destructive and destroys nature and you think of of Saruman and and what everything that he's doing as he's uh, kind of creating this I guess you could say a city of orcs and how nature kind of sweeps in and, and uh, takes back control it very much felt 
um, of the same world with this, which I thought was very interesting. Um, but I, but what I thought was so moving in this film was how in the end you get this spirit of the forest. You know, you have this sacrifice that Ashitaka and San are willing to make, you know, by, by rescuing the head of the forest spirit and returning it to its, its body, which is this massive thing that's kind of destroying everything, um, knowing that they're likely going to die. And as they are holding it, of course, all this demon stuff is spilling all over them and their bodies are covered in the marks of the demon. And uh, just saying that just sounds so dark and, and like, I'm talking about a horror movie here. Um, but what I, I like about it is um, the, the forest spirit um, gets its head back and, uh, and saves them essentially. And then it, it's like it's healed, but then it like falls and dies. And it spreads itself and allows for this rebirth of, of life again. And, and everything that it had destroyed is once again full of, of life. And it's just this beautiful, um, just nature everywhere. The tree spirits come back. Um, but at the same time, like um, I, I, think, I think it was Okoto says when he's talking to the wolves, um, you know, Man is going to, you know, we're going to diminish until we're unable to speak and we're just going to be game that the humans are going to hunt. And I think that that was kind of like this whole thing was kind of, you know, the end of this era that we were kind of witnessing. And as the forest spirit died, um, you have this this enlightenment, I guess you could say, with some of the humans. Uh, you see certainly that with uh, uh, with Lady Iboshi and how she's like, we're going to rebuild Irontown, but we're going to do it differently this time. Um, and, and, uh, Ashitaka is going to help and San is going to stay with the wolves, but you get this sense that she's kind of going to be helping. But at the same time, you get this sense that that world where these gods, the wolves and boars and, and monkeys and all that, um, are going to just turn into game. And, and the only way that nature can really stay the way that it was is by our hand and, and what we do to kind of help preserve it. So I, I don't know. I really liked that. That was like a really intense, big message for this movie to be spitting out. And it felt very Miyazaki, but I feel like this was probably the strongest way that he's told it. Well, that's interesting. I, you know, I'm, I, I'm glad you gave that preamble. I, you know, it's, I, I, I feel like I got it. I didn't think about it quite so deeply, but when she, when, when the, the daywalker nature God Nightwalker, laid down and died and everything got green again, I, I couldn't help but think of this is your last shot, right? This is, we yeah. used to have this daily regrowth and rebirth and everything was fine. You could screw up during the day, but everything would be fine the next day. Everything would, would we'd be okay. And now we don't have that anymore. So to your point, uh, yeah, everything that we do now, this was our last shot to have any help. Now we have to do everything on our own and and take responsibility for our own actions each day because no one else is going to zero out the clock again for us. And I, I think that is a very powerful message. Um, in in terms of certainly in terms of the script, it it um, it it's, feels well structured. It has some sequences of Miyazaki patience and restraint, and yet some sequences of you know fantastic character design and fast moving action. And as we've already talked about, some violence. Uh, talk a little bit about the title because it's not it it it's not her name. Yeah, I think that's something that really uh, sounds confusing when it's called Princess Mononoke. You assume that oh she's a princess and her name is Mononoke. Well, that's not the case. As they, as I mean, everybody calls her San in the film, 
Uh, Mononoke actually translates to spirit or monster. So kind of roughly it's translated as like monster princess because she's kind of this this human who's living with these gods. And so she's kind of this princess who has crossed worlds and is helping them. But she's kind of this this balance between these two sides almost. That's something I think is really interesting is it seems like she would be the person that is is in the place to kind of help make this change. It's really Ashitaka who does it. And I, I think it's almost like the the wolves have their their anger and the frustration and kind of like their warlike nature has rubbed off on her to such an extreme that it really takes Ashitaka to help her kind of trans- transition to a place. And so she has that character arc as she's the one who, as as the film comes to an end, you know, she goes back with them. But at the same time, you get this sense that she's now kind of going to partner up with the humans to help everybody kind of move forward. So I, it's a really interesting title because it's like, you know, she's this this monster princess you know but uh it's it, she's the one who's going to be the balance between the two worlds i guess as they move forward which i think is interesting and this is this ties to a comment that my kids made when right when the movie was over which was you know the, apparently miyazaki had uh, another working title uh, which w- translates to, you know, the story of Ashitaka or the legend of Ashitaka. So you kind of get this sense that he was trying to figure out, you know, what are we, what are we going to call this? Is it going to be uh, titled after her? Is it going to be titled after him? He is really, after all, the central character. I mean, he leads us through the the journey of the narrative pretty much the whole time. Um, and the and and she doesn't come into the picture until, you know, reasonably uh, into the, the narrative. But uh, my kids, the first thing they thing they said was, "Why on earth did they name it after her?" Uh, which I thought was really interesting. Just as an aside, like it's, they they did not connect with necessarily with her as the principal um, uh, protagonist enough to merit naming the movie after her. Which you know, from the eyes of babes, man, I don't know what you want to make of that. But I thought it was interesting that it sounds like Miyazaki was kind of struggling with that too. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like he preferred um, the Ashitaka title. <sighs> It's one of those things where it almost it makes you think, you know, were they overthinking it? Like, you know, the princess films in the in the world of animation obviously have left their mark on society. There are a lot of prominent princess films. Was this an opportunity for them to uh, to make a princess film, but do it in kind of the Miyazaki style? And I'm wondering if that's why they opted to go that route rather than The Legend of Ashitaka. Well, and, you know, I, I don't know. It's it's almost sort of a, a tongue-in-cheek look at Princess, right? She's she The first time we see her, she's got blood all over her face and hands. She's got a dagger in her hand. I mean, she's just she's messed up. Um, and it, it fits in the uh, sort of lineage of Miyazaki women. I mean, this is this whole movie is driven by very strong women. And it, whether we're looking at, you know, um, San herself, or, you know, our principal antagonist is is also a strong woman character. And uh, we have a number of, of women characters in the film that are funny, or, uh, you know, whatever, they lead the, the uh, rebellion, or they lead the resistance at Irontown. Uh, it is all led by women, and so uh, it, it's funny to look at that title and and look at toying with the title, putting it from the perspective of the the male character, the central male character. Seems like uh, it it doesn't um, um, it, it doesn't do enough service to who really drives this film. It does make me feel like if if you know Disney has purchased uh, all, or has agreed to release all of these Studio Ghibli films in the U.S., 
if perhaps they should have a Princess Mononoke added to the lineup of princesses in their parks. And yes. maybe maybe uh, Princess Mononoke can ride the wolf, the uh, wolf in the parades, and the wolf can like grab children by the head and shake them around a little bit <laughs> Just until until blood. San until San says no no no. <laughs> no, I think that is Andy. I think you're on it, and I think she needs to be. They need to sell the uh, you know large plastic daggers in all of the stores. And the face makeup, that's what the princesses are doing is like you can get your face painted like Mononoke. Like you <laughs> could do a ma- mon- the Mononoke makeover. Uh, would, yes. So and then and then in her parade lineup, all the lepers would be the ones like with the flag bearers and everything. <laughs> <laughs> and there's got to be there's a Mononoke uh, ride, Princess Mononoke ride, where uh, you have to ride on the demon, the worm demon uh, boar. And yes, it's. And and at the end, you actually you have to suck the iron ball out of the shoulder of a giant wolf. <laughs> and that's I we're really I think this is they should ask. They should the, ask. They should come to us. <laughs> <laughs> oh my Miyazaki oh my. Miyazaki World at as a like a, a an event at Disney would be the most horrific. Uh, therapy-inducing <laughs> locale. You can even imagine. Oh, oh man, that'd be great. Uh, the Ghibli yeah. Parade. Ghibli Parade. <laughs> uh, you know, we should. I think I skipped over it a little bit too quickly. The script, while it was written by Hayao Miyazaki, was adapted to English by the one and only Neil Gaiman. And I have to say that out loud because I am reading American Gods for the very first time. Nice. Right now. Yeah, have you ever read it's, it? So good. I haven't. I haven't. Uh, he he's a really interesting choice because he does create such interesting fantastical worlds um but it's it's a challenge i think for for writers to adapt um adapt these films because they have to um they have to take uh the things that are inherently japanese and find ways to translate it so that so that americans can kind of understand oh okay that's what's going on here um and fit it to the mouths of the uh of the animation that's already been done it's a really challenging job so uh, while i do have problems with the english adaptation and just the the way the voice cast works i do give major props to neil gaiman for what he did here so miyazaki obviously at the helm directing this thing too what do you uh, what was your sense of his directing uh, as it's been I, I mean it's been kind of a long time since the last time we ran our miyazaki series a couple of years now yeah, and we hadn't seen anything quite so um, dark uh, in our last series. Uh, you know, there was a, a really fun one. There was one that was really aimed at kids, and then his biopic. So it was an interesting uh, spread of films across his career. This one really just went for the jugular, and I think he wasn't afraid to hold back. I mean, or well, he didn't hold back. There were a lot of interesting images throughout the film. The one that really haunted me more than anything, uh, interestingly, was when those uh, the men hiding under the boar skins appear oh. because they don't feel like they're people hiding under boar skins when they first appear they feel like just spirits like strange creepy spirits that are kind of following okoto as uh, as he's kind of running or, or as um, as uh, san is helping him to the lake of the spirit of the forest uh, in in search of healing um, but you get these creepy like just black eyes, these these, almost just like they're just floating across the ground, just creepy uh, bodies. And, uh, you know, I just found that like so haunting to see that. And 
it's revealed, uh, you know, early-ish that they are actually men hiding, disguising their the their man scent by hiding under these boar skins. But they still don't seem that way. It just is so creepy, and it's not until they start like sticking out their blow darts out of the uh, eye holes that you start realizing that that's really what they are. But boy, I tell you, creepy isn't stuff. It, isn't it telling though that thematically that that and I I totally agree with you that it is it it they play as demons and and so isn't it interesting thematically that here they are dressed like demons and the animation heavily tilted toward inhuman creatures that are scurrying like slugs across the forest floor uh, in the place of the gods and demons too in the forest in this place where humans are naturally out of place so once we know that they're humans in in the skins of these you know creatures uh, isn't it that much more telling that, you know, who's, it at least allows us to pose the question, who's the demon here? Who's the invader? Uh, we know that there are challenges right now, you know, with the demons coming out of the forest, uh, but, but really who's the, who's, who's the bigger threat? And, and I really like that question. Well, and I mean, they creep up to Okoto when she's not paying attention, and it's like they're, uh, you know, piglets, you know, kind of uh, yeah. feeding from mom. But then all of a sudden, Okoto like screams and just like spews blood everywhere and basically becomes a demon, you know, and all the worm things start yep. crawling all over him. So, I mean, really, you're you're absolutely right. These, you know, these people are exactly uh, the demons that uh, destroy this uh, this god of the forest. Oh, very creepy. To that point, speaking of just the imagery that Miyazaki uh, uses in the film, I mean, aside from stuff like this, you get just these these beautiful shots of of nature. You get uh, really just. Um, powerful moments where like when when uh, Ashitaka first sees the spirit of the forest and this it's like this this deer you see this this uh, herd of deer kind of walking past in the glow of of the sun and then all of a sudden this one comes into frame that just has like more antlers than you've ever seen it's just a <laughs> so completely impossible crazy. amount it's it, you know these these but it's a beautiful image and there are so many images like that throughout the film both you, you know the the worm possessed um uh you know the the gods when they become possessed and these just insane worms that are crawling all over them that is just so disturbing and the beauty and i think again just like everything else in the film miyazaki finds a really interesting balance between these two sides in this uh, world that he's created it is said that he is a huge fan of john ford and that Irontown was, in fact, greatly inspired by John Ford's Westerns. Did you see it? Uh, apparently, Miyazaki said he was depicting a frontier town populated with characters from outcast groups and oppressed minorities who rarely, if ever, appear in Japanese films. And I thought that was kind of an interesting uh, way to kind of approach this, this world. Irontown very easily could have been this horrible place run by Lady Eboshi and just it was all like slaves and darkness and uh, almost like, you know, it could have been depicted like the mines in uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Mm -hmm. Instead, it's depicted this as this uh, interesting community where uh, all of these uh, people who live here are like the women are all former brothel workers and Lady Eboshi has kind of saved them from that life. Like you've already mentioned, there's all the lepers. And everybody seems happy here. It's it's a nice way. It's a it's a respite from the world. But they are developing um, guns and bullets. So there's that. 
it's interesting the contrast between Iron Town and Ashitaka's tribe, and and they are in the middle of of sort of they're witnessing their own decline, and Iron Town is growing, but again, at what cost? Like it's not just she's liberated the prostitutes; they are now working essentially as you know slaves in a you know running the the baffles on the giant iron mill uh, she has definitely you know taken in the lepers but at what cost she keeps them healthy to uh, you know do the the work that other uh, that she can't get others to do so uh, this is very much a town that reflects the challenges of scale and we have this other town that is shrinking, uh, and the tribe that is shrinking, the Emishi uh, tribe, and yet Irontown is trying to grow, but can't grow without doing enormous damage to the place around them. And so while, you know, she is not, Iboshi is not a, a typical antagonist, she's not evil, right? She's, she's genuinely not evil. She has made choices that she believes benefits her town, uh, and they come at the in in direct conflict with the environment around her and that's that's i think one of the most interesting things about about lady aboshi and and her role she does things that makes her sound like a villain but like you said really the the community is they're just trying to figure out how to thrive and they haven't figured out how to do that without doing damage to other other elements there's something to be said about, uh, you know, there's Jigo, another interesting character who is kind of this, another antagonistic sort of character. At first you meet him, he's kind of, he sells himself as kind of a monk and he befriends Ashitaka and helps him figure out where he's going, sends him off to Irontown. Then he, uh, you find out he's in partnership with Lady Eboshi and he has this whole troop of, of assassins and uh, who are going to help her fight the uh, the samurai clan, uh, whoever it is that she's fighting, as she's trying to take over and dominate. Um, and then he's also trying to, uh, you know, get the head of the spirit of the forest and help her do so. Um, but really, he's trying to get it so that he can, I don't know, you get a sense that he wants to get it so that he can take it to the um, the leader of their community and uh, so that person can live forever because that's what they believe. But at the same time, you think that maybe he's really doing it for himself. So he's a really interesting guy. And so, um, but even in that, you get this sense of this is this kind of, he seems nice, but then he's kind of despicable, but he's likable. Um, and then at the end, he's just like, you know, he he's not the guy that Ashitaka has to fight in order to get this head back. Normally, if you like James Cameron was directing this, there would be this big fight, right. and, and and Ashitaka would you know cut off this guy's head, yes. and then then take the he- the head of the spirit of the forest and return it. Um, in this one, not only does uh, Jigo finally say, "All right, fine," but it's it's your loss, and gives the head, opens the the container for Ashitaka and San. But uh, he doesn't die when, when the spirit of the forest takes its head back and it kind of blasts everything across the land. And in the end, he's just like, yeah, what are you going to do? <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, okay. But, but that gets yeah. right to the point, right? Which is that, these, yeah. I mean, they, it seems like they're doing evil things, but they really are genuinely self-interested, ego-driven, just trying to do what they think is best to, yeah, keep keep power, keep their, you know, their place or, or improve their own lot in life. What I also think is so interesting is that it's not just the humans that are this way. But I mean, look at, at Moro, the, uh, the 
a wolf mother or mm-hmm. a kodo or the or the gorillas they they are all the same they're they're oh, all yeah. much more self-interested than anybody trying to work together to find a way to make things uh you know better for everybody well and to your point about the gorillas i mean it, you you brought up the the humans in body sacks right the skin sacks the gorillas are portrayed as totally inanimal right when they're yeah. they're in the trees in the storm uh, they are really scary in that the first time we meet them and uh, uh, you know the way are they're drawn sort of in shadow with no definition to their their faces it's just beautiful art um, but really scary portrayal oh absolutely yeah so back to back to Miyazaki as director he he was uh, directly involved in uh, over a, a reasonably large team for this film yeah, and you know he uh, he is very much uh, integrated in the production of these films. Um, according to reports, he personally oversaw each of the 144,000 cells of animation that were uh, drawn for this film, and it's estimated that he redrew parts of at least 80,000 of them. So wow. very much somebody who wants to be integral to uh, bringing his vision to life. Um, it's I don't know. It says a lot about uh, him maybe it also says he's a control freak but <laughs> but he does do some amazing stuff and really makes a, a film that feels very much like an auteur you know we talked a little bit about particularly in the the uh the wind rises uh you know i think we talked about their sort of maturity with cg uh but this was this the first uh, of their and uh, their sort of entree into cg elements in their film from what I can tell, it is. Um, I don't think there was anything before this. This uh, and there was very little in here. If anything, it was used very specifically to uh, kind of just uh, enhance the actual um, other storytelling that was happening and uh, and all the traditional drawings. I think it was only like five minutes, maybe worth of footage uh, was touched with some computer animation. It was stuff like. I think some of the backgrounds, the way that they would blur when people were going fast or supposedly like the writhing um, demon worms, um, the way that they were kind of added on to creatures, that was, um, they used some computer animation for that. And so I think this was the beginning of them exploring what they could do with it without relying on it as the tool to just make the film. Well, it was beautiful. Uh, I And... You could start to see it, but it wasn't like, oh, look, there's a giant field of of CG, obviously CG grass. You know, I mean, it yeah, was, right. Uh, it was uh, pretty elegant. Uh, let's do first shot, last shot. Yeah, we start on a wide shot of the misty mountaintops. There's a, a description of the gods of nature that dwell there, and then we tilt down to reveal something lurking in the woods, a demon. Mm, and the last shot, we end on the tops of the dead trees. They are now sprouting with growth, and we tilt down to the shore of the lake, where amidst the new saplings, a tree spirit enters, a full-on death and rebirth. I mean, I think that that's a great first and last shot pairing that really sets everything up, right? You've got this yeah. this, uh, this story of these demons that are kind of being brought on by man but at the end you have this rebirth and how everything is is new again and now it's going to be in a place where people hopefully are going to be able to all live together 
Yeah, starts in the woods, ends over the woods. Implication of you know, here we are looking closely. Here we are. What have we learned? We've we have a, a new awareness, a, a broader horizon. I think it's a, a fairly beautiful metaphoric pairing. The cast we've got. Uh, so we're going to talk. Uh, uh, we're going to we've got two characters, two actors for each character. Uh, the English casting right. was done by Jack Fletcher. I did, I don't know who did the Japanese casting. I couldn't find it. Probably Hayao Miyazaki himself. Probably. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Interview went to their houses, had tea. <laughs> Ashitaka is played by uh, Yoji Matsuda in the Japanese version and Billy Crudup in the English version. Good old Billy. Billy Crudup. He was, oh, I just watched him Billy. in, in uh, Jackie. It was a strange pairing watching uh, Jackie and this back to back. That's funny. I uh, I pretty much uh, just want to just just uh, I can't really think of, and you know I'm I'm a huge fan of the Big Fish, but whenever I think of Billy Crudup, I'm thinking Doctor Manhattan. He yeah, it's funny because that film was not universally loved, but yeah. it is one of those mo- those roles that I I'm the same way. Like he became so iconic for me also as Doctor Manhattan. It's such an interesting uh, thing to have pulled from that. Uh, what did we think of the uh, of the voice performance? And I I really only have any any commentary on the, the obviously on the American or on the English version uh, of the performances, and only on a couple of them. So, gotcha. tell me where you want to where you want to lock in. Well, um, I will say Yoji Matsuda, who uh, did the Japanese voice, also appeared in Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind uh, for for Miyazaki. And I think that, uh, other than this, might be it. Um, he has also been in uh, The Girl Who Leapt Through Time from 2006, which I, that's one of those movies that I've heard nothing but good things about, and it's been on my list of things to watch forever. Just haven't gotten around to it. I, I pretty much am going to, you know, across the board, I am going to struggle with all the actors in the English version because I just feel like they're all a little stilted. And I know... They're all trying to read very specific uh, lines that were scripted to fit the lip movements for that were done for the Japanese version, um, and I think they did a good job with the script. Um, I just I struggle with some of the actors. Billy Crudup is actually he works pretty well for me, and as Ashitaka, I think he carries kind of a um, there's a, a a distance I think that he carries because Ashitaka it's a really interesting character that really. Um, walks the line between both sides and doesn't really take sides. In fact, he he says, you know, I'm I'm here to kind of look um, at that. I can't remember what the line he says about, you know, I'm I'm here to look at um, at uh, the work that has been done with uh, with untainted eyes or something like that. Um, and I think that speaks a lot to his character and how he's approaching things. He is somebody that is able to be on uh, on both sides, and people kind of seem okay like uh, with the way he's doing it. He's like playing both sides a little bit like Clint Eastwood in in uh, uh, Fistful of Dollars. Um, I, I I don't know. I I like him, and I think Billy Crudup actually uh, has this this presence that actually is maybe the least offensive of the English uh, speaking cast for me. <laughs> <laughs> glowing recommendation uh, <laughs> I, I, I I did not have a problem with Billy Crudup nor did I find him uh, you know ex- exceptional in, in in particularly in the film I thought he was a fine and approachable actor but I, you know again I didn't I didn't watch it with next to the um, you know 
next to the subtitled version, and so I, I don't have anything immediately to compare it to. I thought, in in fact, I'll just say I, there was there only one actor that I had trouble with, and and it was more of a character challenge that I had than anything else. So, um, you know, moving on to San Princess Mononoke herself, uh, Yuriko Ishida uh, in the Japanese, and Claire Danes in the English uh, title. Do you have a problem with Claire? Nobody has problems with Claire, Andy. <laughs> You know, I didn't really have a huge problem with her. I, I, I think that her role is, uh, no, I mean, she's raised by wolves. She's not overly talkative. And right. so I guess to that end, she works fine uh, in context of the film. Same thing with Yuriko Ishida. I think that she does uh, just as fine a job um, in that particular character. What I, what I did find interesting, and this doesn't speak to either of the actors, um, but I loved this backstory that we get from Moro about how she came to raise San. What a dark story about how her, you know, her parents were, you know, you know, defiling the woods or whatever they were doing. And when she came into attack, they like they threw their baby at her and like ran off. It's like horrible. <laughs> I know. It's terrible. Oh. Yes, it is terrible. Um, but hey, you know, she thought she was a wolf, and at least she was. Yep. She, you know. That was good. Um, Yuko Tanaka and Mini Driver uh, are Lady Iboshi. I actually thought that Mini Driver was great as Lady Iboshi, and I think anytime we get Mini Driver in her English accent, she's fantastic. I actually really liked her too. She was probably my favorite of the cast. Um, well, one of my favorites. I think that she actually was perfectly cast, and I think she carried the role really well. I think both of them actually did. Yuko Tanaka also did. So I, I liked both of them. Okay, and here we part ways. Jigo, uh, Kaoru Kobayashi, and Billy Bob Thornton. You had problems with Billy Bob. I did. I did. I did much- not. Really? Oh. Really? I thought he was funny. That was my biggest problem. And it the listening to Ka- Kaoru Kobayashi um, play Jigo, I had a much easier time uh, just getting into that particular element of the story. Billy Bob, how would I don't you, know. How would you describe the, the quality of uh, Kobayashi's voice? Can, and can you maybe do a little bit of it? <laughs> okay. uh, how would you... <laughs> <laughs> just so sure. I can get a, a me, comparison. No, it, it just, I don't know. Billy Bob just uh, just had a Billy Bob tone. And it just, I don't know. I just, I, and maybe it wasn't that it was him, but it was it was so easily identifiable that he pulled me out every time. I mean, maybe that's what it was. But I just, It was I, practically I Sam Elliott. <laughs> <laughs> Listen to you. <laughs> but you liked it. So So he worked well in that character for you. Yes, and I want to compare this to uh, Koroku. Uh, Koroku, the uh, Koroku's character, he was uh, played by uh, Masahiko Nishimura and John Demita, and I had real trouble with him because the character is sort of the fool, right? I mean, he's the character that does all the faces. There's always the yeah. character that does the faces. You know, he gets kicked in the crotch, he does the face. He stubs his toe, he does the face, right? Uh, and there's there's very much a, a uh, uh, I, I don't know, what, what would it be, uh, Ozzy and Harriet kind of relationship between him and his, his relationship with Jada Pinkett Smith's uh, and Sumi Shimamoto's Toki. 
which which is funny. I mean, it's a funny character, but I found myself taken out every time John Demita spoke in exactly the opposite way that I found myself interested in hearing Billy Bob Thornton speak as Jigo. I I just I, I felt I was able to connect more with the funny of Billy Bob Thornton's uh, portrayal uh, and not get taken out of it by the just sort of lampooning of who this character is over and over and over again in the case of uh, Koroku. So, but but do you blame that on John Demita, or is that in the script? Is that an intrinsic script issue where they stuck in this kind of comedic pair? which very much felt like um, you know, a tonal shift for a lot of it. Almost felt like they needed to get that comedic element in uh, yeah. to give everybody a little bit of a laugh. And Toki and Kuroku's uh, relationship was what they chose to do that with. Because yeah, I got a I, sense that that was just the nature of their, their characters. Yeah, it was too, uh, to me. And that's kind of why I bring that up, because it, that, that I think it was, it was probably a character thing. But uh, it reminded me a lot, actually, of the Castle of Cagliostro, which, you know, it's like full of characters like that. Like they, they just right. were straight off the screen. Uh, and uh, in this case, though, I, was, I found myself more distracted by the portrayal. And, and I think of Jada Pinkett Smith, too. And that may have been, um, hers was the only performance where I thought, gosh, she is, they are shoehorning words into her mouth. Like, this is not a great adaptation for her. I, I, I'm curious. I mean, did you have a sense to have a sense of the comparison between Toko's or Toki's uh, Japanese portrayal versus English? I, I mean, it's hard to say because it's not like I'm reading the English subtitles while I'm listening to Jada Pinkett Smith. And so, it's it's hard for me to really gauge yeah. exactly how the two compared, and I didn't I didn't watch them both. I, you know, I kind of watched half the film in one way, half the film in the other. So I can't compare like how did one line play in two different versions. Um, I, all I can say to that though is that I didn't really have any problems with uh, with either Jada Pinkett Smith or Sumi uh, Shimamoto as Toki. Um, it, it kind of worked for me in uh, in both cases. Um, so I don't know. I can't really fully support you. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> Anybody else you want to talk about uh, in in terms of uh, the cast? I, I really liked um, Moro and Okoto, the two gods that we really spend our time with. Akihiro Miwa and Jillian Anderson uh, play Moro, and he, Hisaya um, Morishige and Keith David play Okoto. Um, Keith David was a great voice choice for Okoto, my other favorite, uh, paired with Mini Driver. And uh, Gillian Anderson, I actually liked his Moro. And it was interesting because, unless I'm mistaken, the wolf mother in the Japanese version played by Akihiro Miwa is a male voice. And Gillian Anderson was a female voice, which I'm guessing they chose to do because they call her the wolf mother. But it's a male voice in the Japanese version. So that was kind hmm. of an interesting, interesting difference there. All right. Shall we talk briefly about getting it made? Yeah. Toshio Suzuki, producer. As he is for so many of the Studio Ghibli films. Yes, he is. Uh, and Miyazaki uh, is, uh, you know, he he made this thing. Uh, it sounds like he really struggled uh, with with getting this thing off the ground. Uh, you know, I don't I don't know. Do we do we say that Hayao Miyazaki had writer's block? It did sound that way. I mean, it sounded like he kind of started coming up with the inklings of this idea back in the late seventies, um, and then didn't really start developing it until the mid nineties. And uh, then, you know, because Totoro had some of the same elements in it, it seemed like that just kind of put him in a place where he couldn't figure out uh, where to take this particular story. 
And it wasn't until he left the project to um, to go do this music video, uh, which I am quite a fan of for uh, Chage and Asuka, the song On Your Mark. Um, we're going to put a link to that video in the show notes. Um, that helped him. I, I gave him the break he needed, I think, to kind of figure out the story and and uh, get it moving in the direction that uh, it is now. Yeah, it's uh, it. It it's fascinating, and I'm really glad we found that video because it actually tells a whole story. And I was completely snookered because of the dummies that do the you know supercuts of Miyazaki films and put it over the same song on YouTube. Oh, You're yeah. dummies! Yep. Stop doing that. You totally snookered me. But we found it, and it actually it it tells a complete story. It's really quite lovely. Uh, so check out the show notes for that, um, and and you can kind of see what happened to get Miyazaki back on track. Uh, cinematography. Atsushi Okui. So here we have Miyazaki checking every single frame. So what is Atsushi Okui doing? This is that question that we perpetually run into in animated films. Like, why do they have a cinematographer? A cinematographer is handling kind of the lighting of a film and and balancing how the kind of light and shadow play out in in an image. And I, I guess the cinematographer does the same thing. You know, you're going to get this sense of this this world, and the cinematographer, I guess, is going to help uh, figure out the right way to light it. I, I mean, that's my biggest uh, guess with it. Uh, I don't know. It's just a weird role. I don't ever fully understand. We need to get an animation cinematographer onto the show to for a speakeasy, so we can figure out what the heck they really are doing. You know, I'll bet. I'll bet. I know. I bet we know some people who could help us with that. I bet we do. I'll bet we do. Quick to the <laughs> Bancroft phone. Uh, supervising animators Masahashi Ando, uh, Yoshifumi Kondo, and Kitaro Kosaka. Those three supervising animators paired with the uh, the the team of artists they had doing the backgrounds. The key animators they had doing the character animation, uh, I mean, they really created this full world. So uh, big kudos to them. I know Hayao Miyazaki is the one who really kind of takes the credit for these films. But I mean, obviously, it's a full team of people. And those three supervising animators uh, really helped uh, guide everything and bring it to fruition. And it's it's beautiful. It really is just beautiful. The character design, the, the, uh, the way that everything blends in with the worlds. I love the... the differences in the characters of the humans versus the gods and everything just some some really interesting touches that they have throughout the film yeah the gods in particular are just creepy crushingly creepy the demons uh in in particular amazing uh post-production miyazaki edited it with uh takeshi sayama uh it it was edited tight i mean edited tight for uh for a miyazaki film well, yeah. I mean, that being said, I mean, it is a long animated film. And I think yeah. that it's something that some people might have issues with. I mean, it runs uh, full, what is it, two hours two, yeah, it's like and 12, 14 minutes. Yeah. yeah. It's a it's a hefty length. And you're certainly not going to get that sort of release from a Disney film. Some people have real issues with long films. And I think if the film, if the story is working, then there really isn't any issue to have with the length. And this is one of those cases where you know, I have no issue with the length of this film. I think that everything in it is really there for a reason. So I, I really, uh, I like it. Well, I do too. We started it at eight o'clock and the only person who fell asleep was my wife. So that, that's really telling because she falls asleep at every movie that we watch as a family. So, uh, that my kids both hung in there until, uh, after 10 to watch this 
this animated film has, is, um, is, is telling it of itself. I think it works. I, th- I really think it works. Um, sound, Michihiro Ito, uh, Ito uh, sound editor, um, and music, Joe Hisaishi. The uh, sound and music in this film are stellar. I, I think the sound adds to all of this world, you know, this world building that we've been talking about. I mean, you have amazing battle scenes when the when the uh, the clan of the boar gods charges, and you just get these massive explosions, and the grenades are getting dropped on them. Uh, I mean, it's just insane. And then the the squealing and the and the shrieking and the cries and the 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 way that the guns sound and and just everything I mean there's so much um, brought to life through the use of sound um, that I mean it's it's really stellar work that uh, that they do here and then of course Joe Hisaishi you know I have my ten J's of uh, composing and he is one of them I think that the work he does here is uh, some of his best the themes here are just haunting and beautiful and they stick in my head forever I have been humming the theme for this for a week now. I just can't get it out of my head. It's just, which is a good thing. It's a beautiful theme. Um, Just a really haunting and it fits perfectly with the world that Miyazaki created. I I could not agree more. And, you know, with all the commentary that we have even on this show about the the death of the great uh, theme, the great cinema theme, Boy, I didn't have a problem with this film. Uh, I think it's it it locked into my brain too. Uh, I, I think it's just terrific. I feel like every time we met, you mentioned your list of J's, you it, it's growing. Didn't when we started this show, weren't there like six? How no, has this it's always been ten? It's always James, been James, 10? Jerry, Jerry, Joe, John, 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 John. <laughs> <laughs> James, James, Jerry, Jerry, John. <laughs> There's a lot of Johns. <laughs> oh dear! Uh, how to do an awards season? Fairly well, I think. Yeah, the film had thirteen wins and five other nominations. Uh, the ones I was going to mention are at the Annie Awards, uh, which is the uh, the big animation film awards. It was nominated for an outstanding individual achievement for directing in an animated feature production. Hayao Miyazaki was nominated for the English language version. Interestingly, uh, that version um, it did lose to Toy Story two, unfortunately, um, and at the awards of the Japanese Academy. It won for Best Film, and it got a special award. And I thought this was uh, an interesting way that they wrote it. A special award to a talented singer who sang the theme song for the film, Yoshikazu Mera, uh, got an award for that. So uh, so kudos to them and all for all the other awards that it received. Before we jump into the budget, Pete, there's one other thing that I thought was really interesting. That In 2012, they actually adapted this for the stage which I think is interesting. It was the first stage ad- adaptation of a Studio Ghibli film. What? what? Yeah, it was. Uh, it was so. This is the. Uh, it was between Whole Hog Theater and Studio Ghibli, and um, I, I think they uh, they somehow. It was the people. It was Nick Park actually from Ardman who introduced the two of them together. Uh, Ardman, of course, uh, the home of of um, Wallace and Gromit. And a lot of other wonderful animated uh, films. They introduced all these people together, and uh, and uh, Toshio Suzuki um, thought it would be a great idea. So they made this play, and it features large puppets made out of recycled and reclaimed materials. And it is, I guess, it's been just hugely popular uh, when it uh, the first performances sold out um, like a year in advance. Um, and uh, after it played in London, it went to Japan. 
and then back to London, and these performances just keep selling out, or at least they were selling out. I don't know if it's still running, but it ran for a couple years, so... Wow. I have no idea if it's ever going to make a leap over to the US, but I am really fascinated by this straight stage adaptation and I would love to see it if it no ever makes its way here. That's fantastic. Because Crazy again, stuff. of the blood and the right. archery. <laughs> How do you right? I want to see all of that. I would love to see how they pull that off. It would be very interesting. How uh, how to do uh, in uh, in the numbers, Andy? Well, Pete Hayao Miyazaki and his team had a budget of two point three billion yen, which sounds like a lot, but it was about nineteen point four million, or just over twenty nine million dollars in today's dollars. The movie opened in Japan on July twelfth, nineteen ninety seven, and became a sensation, steamrolling its way to the top of the charts to become the highest grossing film in Japan, at least until a few months later when Titanic steamrolled over it. It did maintain its status as the highest grossing Japanese film for a few more years until 2001, but we'll talk about that more next week. The movie went on to gross 14.5 billion yen, which was 148 million or 222 million in today's dollars. Disney had the right to distribute it, but the PG-13 dark nature of the story wasn't in their camp, so they turned it over to the Weinsteins over at Miramax. But as per typical Harvey, he demanded cuts made to the film. In response, Tokyo Suzuki sent Weinstein a katana with a message stating, no cuts. <laughs> oh, I love that. The I'm Japanese, not actually sh- that Japanese subtlety. <laughs> I know, right? It's great. I'm not actually sure if this is why it took several years to release in the U.S., but it took over two years before we would get to see it. Miramax did put a lot of money into the English dub, hiring Neil Gaiman, as we said, to do the adaptation and all those wonderful actors that we've talked about. Unfortunately, they opted to not put any money into the advertising, and because of that, it never really found its home theatrically here. The movie started its limited theatrical release in the U.S. on eight screens October 29th, 1999, opposite the House on Haunted Hill remake, Wes Craven's musical drama Music of the Heart, and the fantastic being John Malkovich, which we've talked about on the show. It eventually expanded to 129 screens, but only ended up making about 2.4 million or about 3.4 million in today's dollars. With about another 9 million it earned around the world, the movie ended up grossing just under 239 million in today's dollars, giving it an adjusted profit per finished minute of just over 1.5 million. That's a lot of news for this one, especially coming off our Lorraine series. That was you, a lot of were news. Were you feeling I like you I'm... needed to make up for something? <laughs> I think that's what happened, yes. <laughs> And let me just tell you, I don't like to give these <laughs> real-time critiques about uh, about your your work, right? But but I do feel like you could have come up with a a more grotesque metaphor for what Titanic did to this film. You said it was steamrolled, and I think you could have done better. <laughs> it was the it was the iceberg. That, yeah, uh, yeah. I feel like yes, that Titanic doesn't do as much steamrolling. <laughs> <laughs> Andy, I think it's time for us to rank it. Let's do it. Steamroll your way over to flickchart.com slash the next reel, or you can uh, just swipe over to uh, in your show notes on your podcast app of choice, and you can tap on Flickchart. That'll take you straight to this movie in the Flickchart list. You can just click add to my list, and uh, let's see how your ranking of Princess Mononoke stacks up to our ranking of Princess Mononoke today. Where do we start? First up, Pete, we are back to the O oh Brother block. Princess oh, Mononoke dear. or O oh Brother, where art thou? Indeed, indeed. I uh, I'm I'm O oh Brother. 
I am Princess Mononoke. Really? I am. Oh dear! First one. Right. All right. I know. First one. We're 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 starting with a uh, with some sparring. So yeah, let's do it. Here we go. All right. All right. One, one, two, three. Scissors. Paper. Ooh. Okay. I feel like I can give up almost every other one since I got it into the bottom half. <laughs> That's terrible of you. <laughs> All right, Princess Mononoke or La Femme Nikita. Mononoke for me. You can have it, Andy. <laughs> no, I I actually mean that legitimately. I I would watch Mononoke. Okay, first. Princess Mononoke or No, our last movie. You know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> you say, know, I'm, I'm gonna, gonna say, say no. Mononoke. You're gonna really? say no. I'm gonna, yes. I'm gonna say Mononoke. I Absolutely. can't believe I'm saying no. All right, here we go. Here we go. One, two, two three, three, paper. Rock. Oh, man. <laughs> Poor princess. <laughs> she can hold her please. own. Princess Mononoke or Gallipoli? Princess Mononoke, please. You can have it. Yes, sir. Oh, princess Mononoke or the Born Legacy? Mononoke. <laughs> okay. Mononoke or La Vie en Rose? Oh, Mononoke. Mononoke for me, too. Yeah. Princess Mononoke or Sophie's Choice? Princess Mononoke <laughs> Princess for Mononoke. me. Princess Mononoke is a sequel. Jeez. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Terrible. Princess Mononoke or King's Row? Princess, uh, Princess Mononoke. Mononoke. Yeah. Well, there she sits, way back where she shouldn't be. 191 on our flick chart. Oh, wow. Brutal. Wow. Oh, dear. Yeah. Andy. Yeah, that's on you. That is on you. Oh, I'll, t- I'll take it. I'll take it. It fits exactly where it needs to be. That's, I, oh. that's legit. For our partners over there at Letterboxd.com, where does this land on your star rating, and did you like it? It is... uh, I want you to go first, Pete. (laughs) (laughs) You know, do you? Well, I I could do that. I currently have it as logged. I have watched it. Actually, it's also exactly where it ended up on my flick chart, which is right in the middle. I gave this a three star, um, a three star rating, uh, and I haven't posted my review yet. Because did you you like it? I I did not. I did not like it. So it's three stars, but you did not like it. But I did not like it. I feel like three stars says enough. What my feeling is. Interesting. Okay. Well, I give it five stars, Pete. Five stars. I really, I, like, I have not been able to stop thinking about it. It really hit me. And, uh, yeah, I five stars, and I liked it. That is Let Princess me just ask Mononoke. you this. Did your rating change over the last several days? I mean, have you? It did. It did. I, I think I was at four and a half, and I, then it just kind of kept creeping up. I was at three and a half, and Ooh. over the course of the weekend, I knocked off a half star. Interesting. And our conversation didn't bring it back. No, no, alas. Though I should give you that extra half star just because of how delighted I am about the results of our rock, paper, scissors. <laughs> yeah, I think because of that, we deserve to call it a like. On, uh, okay, you, you on know what, Andy? I am nothing if not a benevolent uh, dictator. <laughs> Please, take the like. All right. So, uh, on average, it's four stars and we're giving it a like. So yes, there you sir. go, Letterboxd fans. Yes, sir. <laughs> Where do we go from here? Well, we are going to be talking about Spirited Away, Miyazaki's very next film that came out in 2001. And I'm looking forward to talking about that one next week. 
I wish these were streaming in more places. Well, it's like Disney. You know, they don't stream their films uh, very much, at least the the big ones. And I know they have a distribution deal with uh, with Studio Ghibli to release all of their films over here in the U.S. But um, I, I obviously it doesn't include a streaming deal. They're they're a little bit tough to come by if you can't find them. Uh, uh, definitely check your local library. They've got them all at mine. Uh, they they're generally checked out. But I did do the I've been doing the Blu-rays since I can't get them uh, streaming. Nice. They, they're Blu-rays, they're pretty. Blu-rays, Blu-ray's pretty good, Andy. I don't know if you've they, heard this. There's it's a craze. It's so much better than Laserdisc. <laughs> I think you should give it a shot. I'll consider that. Until then, I gotta go to bed. All right. Well, I am off to go stand in a tree and wrap my head around a little bit. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. And uh, I've got... I managed to find a one star. Mostly, it is clear that this is one of those movies that uh, apparently very few fulfillment houses can deliver well. Because most (laughs) of... (laughs) Everybody... I don't know how anybody can actually give this a positive review because how anybody was able to get an unscratched, uncracked disc... Judging by these comments is beyond me. But I did have one person who managed to get a disc. And that is Lady J, who says, watch watch this without audio. <laughs> it's, okay. This movie didn't make any sense to me except for the tree nature hugging undertone. It seems all over the place with storylines. I wouldn't be able to explain what this movie is about if I had to. Is it about the kid from this long lost tribe and his coming of age? Is it about Irontown and the exploitation of nature and its resources? Is it about giant wolves and pig demons, among other possible themes? I didn't get it. The animation sequences get the only credit in my book. I say rent it first and then decide if you want it in your collection. Now, I'm just saying, for watching it without any audio, (laughs) not bad. (laughs) Right? That's the best part of that. (laughs) Not not bad. What's yours? Well, I went a little higher than you, Pete. I went with a three-star by K-Cup Coffee User. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> reviews uh, Uses coffee, reviews movies. <laughs> three-star that says, anime. At least it has some good battles. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, anime. <laughs> <laughs> I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. 
Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today.